Well, if you've been with us uh, for a while, and thank you, by the way, Jacob and the team up here for leading us in some powerful worship. Um, man, I'm always so thankful for the way our house uh, worships. Uh, even though it's uh, powerful each week, it's hard for me sometimes to still get over what we're doing when we sing these songs to God and what God's doing when we're in his presence. Um, but uh, if you've been with us, if you were here last week, you know that we opened up a new series that's going to kind of take us for a minute, and we're going to study our way through the gospel of Mark. And, and one of the reasons that we're doing that is, is um, there's this perception, and, and there's some truth to the perception, and uh, maybe some untruth to the perception, but there's a perception in our culture that, that the church somehow uh, several, you know, thousands of years after uh, the life of Jesus, that the church somehow has gotten off course, that the church is kind of built on some structures and has some ideas and maybe some just culture that's developed over thousands of years. And so there's a perception in common culture that Jesus is, Jesus is pretty cool. He's a loving powerful, you know, movement maker, but this thing called the church has somehow gotten off course, and it's about other things than Jesus. In other words, it has other things it cares about, and Jesus isn't at the center of what's driving the church. Now, um, you know, it depends on where you are, depending on what you're looking at, there could be some truth to that, um, or it could be just a misperception. But what's interesting, if you were in the first century, you could not have separated the gathering of people who came together because they had put their confidence in Jesus. You couldn't be a part of that and ever think that it was anything other than about Jesus. You, it would have been impossible for you to separate somehow the teaching and the message and the work of Jesus and to take that out of center place and to put anything else at the center. You just couldn't have done it. And, uh, and the reason you couldn't have done it is because of things like what Paul says. And we looked at one statement from Paul last week in 2 Corinthians. This is another one in 1 Corinthians. But this is one of the reasons you wouldn't have been able to pull Jesus out of the centerpiece of everything the church does. And, and here's why. This is something Paul said. Paul said this kind of thing all the time. But look at this in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. He says, when I, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you uh, the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. In other words, I didn't come to you with great apologetics. And that's a big word for arguments for proving God, right? I didn't come to you with great apologetics and lofty speech and wisdom, he says. He says, um, I decided to know nothing. Someone say nothing. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's a pretty bold statement. Now, did, did, I mean, Paul didn't teach anything. I mean, he did some teachings on marriage. He did teachings on the family. He did teaching on finances. He did teachings on a lot of things. So does Paul saying, I taught you nothing except the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Or is he, what is he saying is that every aspect of the Christian life and this gathering called the people of God, the church, every bit of it comes out of the life, the person, and the work of Jesus. Therefore, I can teach on anything about life and center it inside the person of Jesus. I knew nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. In other words, there's nothing I could say, nothing we could do 
and nothing we should say or do that shouldn't be driven out of that. I should be able to link it straight back to Jesus and who he is and what he did, right? So what's good for us then in the life of our church is to take an extended period of time and go straight to the primary source that helps us look at the mind, teaching, works, and words of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do for a season of time, is we're going to continue to go back week after week after week where Jesus is at the center of the story, and he's teaching, and he's talking, and he's working, and he's healing, and he's doing amazing things, and we're going to put our attention there, and then what we're going to try to do is try to draw our lives out of that. Draw everything we do, how we work and how we live and how we love and how we serve, all of it out of the person and the work and the mind and the character of Jesus. That's what we're trying to do here. So if you hear last week in chapter one, we saw a couple things. We saw one, that as the king was coming and there was this message, it said, prepare the way of the king. And it was a really simple, how do you, what's a heart that's open to the work of Jesus? A heart that's open to the work of Jesus is a heart that is in brokenness and repent. That's the only way your heart's open to the work of Jesus. You don't get to come to Jesus with any pride. You don't get to come to Jesus with any self-sufficiency. You don't get to come to Jesus with your hand gripped around any part of your life. Coming to Jesus requires a brokenness that says, I need help and I need you to move in my direction. And then there's a symbol that would follow that we saw in chapter one, and it was a symbol of baptism. And baptism is a statement about identity. That's exactly what baptism is. It says, here's my old identity. Here's the identity of living for myself, hanging on to what I want, and it's gonna be plunged in to the life of Jesus. And it's gonna be transformed in the life of Jesus. And the cool thing was, is he said, John, this guy John was baptizing people in water. But he says, when the Messiah comes, he's going to baptize you with this person called the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus showed up on the scene, the very next phrase. And it was a beautiful thing. And what does Jesus do? Does Jesus get up on the scene and go, all right, man, let's start baptizing you. Let's start baptizing you. Let's baptize you. No. What does Jesus do? He shows up and he gets baptized. And what happens to Jesus when he gets baptized? The Holy Spirit comes down on him, and for the first time in human history, we get a picture of the full person of God, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit coming down on the Son, the Son in humble obedience to the Father. And what's the Father say? He's got one message, and it is awesome. Here's what he says, I am well pleased with you. Do you know that when you allow your life to be immersed in the person of Jesus, the Father has one deafening thing to say about you. I am well pleased with you. I love you. You are amazing. You are beautiful. And you belong to me. I don't know about you, but that's not always the first thing I thought of when I think of the thing God says over my life. I don't know about you. But it's an amazing reality that the first thing that happens when I plunge my identity into God is God makes me part of this cosmic family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the Father is celebrating over my life, and the Spirit of God is living inside my life, and then I follow in the footsteps of Jesus to say, Father, I'm for you. I belong to you. Here I am, resting in your affirmation, resting in your acceptance. 
resting as a son who belongs to you. That one truth should change everything. It ought to change everything about us. Every aspect of our lives, every thought, every word, and everything we would ever do for the rest of our lives. It ought to change everything. And so that's what we looked at last week. And uh, it's still a little bit hard to get over, isn't it? So that kind of reality is so uh, powerful. This week, as we continue in Mark chapter 1, um, you know, it's an interesting thing. We're going to see Jesus move into his public ministry. And uh, he's going to take the position of a rabbi in, in many ways. And if you don't know what a rabbi is, a rabbi was a Jewish teacher. And there were a lot of rabbis at the time of Jesus. And Jesus was considered to be, by the, by the average person, a rabbi. And so Jesus is going to start his public ministry. And he's going to take on kind of the persona of a rabbi. Right? And what a rabbi is going to do is a rabbi is going to collect students. That's what rabbis do. They collect students. Now, I don't know if you've been in school or how often, if you went to school for very long, if you did an undergrad or a master's degree. We got a lot of smart people in the house. I was a career student for a long time. And, and as a career student, um, I've had some really good teachers. And I was just reflecting on this a little bit. Um, when I was in seminary, I had a, a professor, a Greek professor named Dr. Hernando. And uh, not a lot of people took second year and third year Greek. And Dr. Hernando is the guy who taught those classes. And so he only had like five or six students that took his classes. And I got to be one of those students. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting um, at the seminary, because if you took Dr. Hernando's classes, you just followed Dr. Hernando everywhere. Like, he invited you to his house. We did classes at IHOP sometimes. Um, uh, why IHOP? Because IHOP is open late at night. I don't know if you knew that. But if you're a grad student, sometimes later hours are better. And we would just hang out all the time. The students hung out together. We hung out with Dr. Hernando. We wanted to talk like him. We wanted to act like him. We wanted to, you know, we wanted to be as smart as him when it came to the Greek and all the different stuff. And we were just kind of in awe of Dr. Hernando. Um, then I think, you know, that was pretty cool. That was pretty influential on my life. Uh, and then I think of like when I was in grad school, when I was at Missouri State University, and I was a 23-year-old, I just graduated from college, and at 23 years old, a state university thought that I was mature enough to teach a college class. Now, that seems crazy now. Like, at 23 years old, someone was like, here's a bunch of freshmen, you can teach them. And uh, I don't know what gave them that idea, but uh, uh, Dr. Boris was my teacher and mentor when I was teaching these classes. And he had about eight kids, eight 23-year-olds that he mentored. And uh, we had to meet with him every week. He liked to be called uh, uh, Papa. Uh, that's kind of weird. I know it sounds weird. But he really treated us like we were his kids. And so he would just kind of take care of us. And he gave us like how to teach. And he gave us the schedule. And he gave us all the things we couldn't do and all the things we could do, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, and he really shaped the trajectory of how I teach in the classroom. It's a wild thing. He really... I mean, even today, when you look at my schedule and what I teach and, and all that kind of stuff, he really shaped the trajectory of how I teach, even today. Um, and then I think back to my undergrad. And in my undergrad, I had a lot of cool teachers, but I had one guy named Professor Langley. We called him doctor, but I don't think he was a doctor, but we just felt like he deserved the title. Have you ever met anybody like that? You're, you call him doctor, you're pretty sure they're not a doctor, but you're like, you need to be called doctor. And his name was... Dr. Langley, Dr. Langley had been a Marine Corps Commandant before he became a professor, okay? He was, he was 70 years old, but he looked like he got cut out of rock. 
he was, he was, he had biceps that were huge and he had full head of hair that was straight gray. I don't think that guy had lost a single hair on his head and he was just, I mean, he, and he was, I've never seen someone dressed so nice. Like he was so, he was dressed nice, he was sharp. And I remember the first day he came to the classroom, his presence made me tremble. I'm not kidding. Like his presence, I thought to myself, if I have to get up and do a speech in front of that guy, I'm in trouble. Like that guy is intimidating. And here's the funny thing about that. You knew there were only two speech teachers at my little college. There was Dr. Langley and Dr. Heaps. Dr. Heaps was a real doctor. Dr. Langley was not a real doctor, but you could tell the difference who went to what teacher. A huge difference. A massive difference. If you were in Langley's class, you could tell when you were a senior in somebody else's class who'd also been in his class. The way they talked, the way they dressed when they spoke, the way they acted. And you could tell the difference if they'd been in somebody else's class. Because everyone in his class dressed nice every time they spoke. Every time. And they knew like little sage statements like uh, Langley would say, your body's a canoe. You need to keep it for the whole journey, so take care of your canoe. Stuff like that. I can still remember it today. Right? Teachers are influential. They're massively influential. And when Jesus starts his public ministry, most perceptions of him is, wow, what a teacher. And so as we, we got to have that mindset as we think, what are people experiencing when they bump into Jesus? What are they experiencing when they encounter him for the first time? And I want you to know that one of the things they're encountering with him is they're encountering what, as far as they know, is just the coolest teacher they've ever encountered. And we'll see what kind of flows out of that and how Jesus handles uh, that perception. So I want to show you this in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, so John was the one who prepared the way of Jesus, and then he gets arrested, mission over, okay, and he's in prison. Jesus starts his public ministry proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. That's the core message of Jesus. The kingdom has come. God is on his way. God is working in the world, and it's time to see the work of God. Repent. Let go of your life. Let go of the trajectory of your life and believe in the good news of Jesus. Believe in the good news of God. That's the message of Jesus. Then he says, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, who we know is Peter, and Andrew, his brother, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, who was in their boat uh, mending the net. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. Okay, two little short verses that we need, to, we need to kind of explore a little bit. We need to kind of get down in the middle of them, and we need to like push on some words, okay? Just to kind of go, hey, what does that mean? We're going to push on it a little bit. Does that rock move? And we, we need to figure out what's going on in this little phrase here because it's really incredible. Jesus takes a walk. He's proclaiming. So he, everyone knows what he's doing. He's got one message, repent, repent and believe in the good news of God. Okay, the kingdom has come, repent, believe in the good news of God. He starts walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he sees a bunch of fishermen. Not your first choice for followers, rabbis. Don't normally go and pick up the fishermen. I just want you to know that. Okay, uh, rabbis typically go to where the highly educated kids are. Um, they go looking for, you know, the ones who actually want to do good in school. Um, your fishermen are not those guys. 
All right, these are the guys who are like, hey, mom and dad, uh, I think a year, you know, I think a year studying the Torah was good, and I think I want to go fish, right? Um, you know, these are, the, these are the guys who are like, hey, you know, high school was all right, um, but mom and dad, I'm not going to college. I think I want to, you know, start laying bricks or, you know, I want to go be a plumber. Just kidding, Michael. You went to college. I know. I'm just giving you a hard time. Um, but you, if these are the guys who are just like, hey, like, high school was enough, and I, I just want to go get some dirt under my fingernails, and I want to hang out on the river, and, and I want to work. I don't want to study anymore. This, these are not the guys the rabbis go pick up. Okay, when rabbis get students, they're looking for people who want to study, who want to think, who want to be influencers. And I don't know about you, but I haven't met a lot of fishermen who want to be influencers. Have you? Um, well, in our culture, we've making fishing a big hobby. I'm talking about the people who actually have to go out there and work for a living and cut the fish open and live and smell like fish constantly. Okay, that's who these guys are. And Jesus meets them and he says, follow me and what? I will make you fishers of men. And immediately, what a radical word. Immediately, they leave their job and they follow. Immediately. Wow. Huh? What? Crazy? I don't care how good the rabbi is. I don't care how smart Dr. Langley is. But if Dr. Langley comes to me and he says, hey man, you need to quit your job and you need to come do this right now. I'm like, dude, I, you know, I've got rent to pay. I've got kids to take care of. I've got a life going on. Uh, let me do some thinking about that. Immediately is not the thing I do when someone says, hey, quit your job and follow me. Right? So I don't know about you, if you've ever been called and someone said, hey, you know, quit that cool job you got. You're making money. You're eating food. Come follow me. JC Penney's doesn't need you anymore, Josh. I need you. Quit your job. Let's go. All right? Uh, immediately is not the thing that we're going to do after that statement. You see what I'm saying? Like, that's just kind of be, uh, I don't know about that. So immediately they leave, right? Now, uh, what's really uh, interesting here, if we're looking at Jesus, is, is a couple things that I, uh, before we do one more thing. Um, I want you to pay attention to what Jesus is doing. Jesus is looking and seeking and searching, okay? Just like that song He's not being passive. Jesus is not over here sitting on the throne going, I hope somebody finds me. I hope somebody comes over here where I'm at. He is seeking and searching people. And that's really encouraging because if you're in the house and you go, man, that's not the God I know. The God I know needs me to come hard. He needs me to work hard. He needs me to seek hard. And he's over there waiting for me to come his direction. I just want you to know that's not the way the gospel works. The gospel works with Jesus coming your direction and my direction every single time. Whether you have felt that before or not, that's the reality of the ministry in the heart of Jesus. He is seeking. He is calling. He is coming for you. And that ought to be a really comforting thing to know that that's the heart and the ministry of Jesus. So he's coming after these guys that don't want to be students. It's not like they came to him going, Rabbi, I want to follow you. He went and found them. And I don't know what your story looks like, but here's what I know for a fact. When I, my relationship with God has not to do with me going like, oh, man, I'm going to seek out this guy guy. It's like God broke into my world and said, hey, man, I, need, I want you. I've been pursuing you. You're a hard-headed, 
person. <laughs> but I've been knocking on your head for a long time. I've been moving stuff around a long time. And I want you. I relate to these fishermen pretty well. I don't know if you can tell. Because um, I imagine they're like that. They're just like, huh? You know? And that's, I, I don't know about you, that's my experience. God broke into my world. And I want you to know he's breaking into your world. He is breaking in, seeking, searching, looking. And I'm telling you what, if he, he'll chase after fishermen who aren't, don't have a God thought, <laughs> he's searching after you. And he's searching after me. And that's even true, even as we've put our heart and our faith into Jesus, he's still pursuing us. Now, that's one big thing we need to look at. The second thing is, is we ought to be a little bit shocked at the, three, the way they respond. It's immediate. They make everything else secondary, just like that. So they see Jesus. He says, come follow me. That's a rabbi. They're not really in the rabbi following business. I don't know. Like there are other people who do that. That's not really them. But the rabbi calls for them. They immediately say yes. And they immediately make everything else secondary. Hey, dad, guess what? You're awesome, but you're secondary. Hey, job, you're awesome, but you're secondary. Hey, family, extended family, wife, kids, you're awesome, but you're secondary. Everything immediately became secondary to the call of Jesus. And then Jesus attached immediately to it the mission. In other words, we need to get gone with the concept that Jesus is calling you to sit in that chair for the rest of your life. We need to get gone with the concept that Jesus has called you and he's just basically trying to give you a get out of hell free card. He just wants you to pray a prayer, sit in a chair, tithe faithfully. Oh, that would be so nice. Be so good. You'd get a gold star for that one. And move on. And this, this mission thing, this mission thing is for a handful of radicals. This mission thing that Jesus is doing of gathering people back to himself, of searching after oppressed and searching after hurting and trying to build back families and build back communities and, and restore the broken world that's been wrecked by rebellion and sin. That mission thing Jesus is doing, there's a handful of people that are part of that. The rest of us need to pray a prayer, make sure we're not going to hell, tithe and show up on Sunday morning. Great. You, you just, you cannot get that out of the teachings of Jesus. The teachings of Jesus will always, he says, he's coming for you. He's pursuing you. He approves of you. He loves you. He wants to gather you back to himself. And he's got a mission. From the beginning. And it doesn't matter how young you come to him or how old you come to him. He's got a mission immediately. And we have to ask ourselves the question, why does that seem so rare in our Christian culture? Why does this seem so rare? In fact, what, what, why does it seem much more common to hear the call of Jesus and be thankful that he loves me and then delay when he calls me to do something? Why does that seem to be the norm? Hey, I need you to be, you know, I need you to hang out and and pursue foster kids. There are a lot of them, they don't have parents, and I need you to step into that. Oh, God, I'll, I'll pray about that. I'll, I'll pray for a minute. You know, maybe in five years down the road when, you know, we've paid off our house and, you know, we got some stuff together, maybe, you know, I'll pray about it. 
Um, you know, maybe, maybe God's kind of like going, hey, you know, uh, I'd like you to be a, a mentor. There's all these young men, and they need mentors. And, of course, you've been hearing about that on Sunday morning a lot. And uh, you're like, you know, that'd be good. That'd be awesome for me to step into that. I need, just need to pray for my job to slow down. I need to pray. I need to get a little more finances in my pocket. I need, I've got, you know, the, actually I have some stuff I'm trying to accomplish in my career right now. And, uh, you know, when I get to that place in my career, that's going to be an awesome thing. And I'll step into that. We delay, 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 delay. And you know what? In all the reasons you and I give for delay, no one is ever going to call you on it because they're all good reasons. They're all great reasons. Your career is not a bad thing. Your finances are wise and smart, and those aren't bad things to be considering. But you and I know when we've been called. We not, I'm not saying general like calling, like my, you know, like these, we've talked about ministry calling. I'm talking about, you know, when Jesus is pursuing you and says, let's go, you know it. And to delay is disobedience. It's disobedience. So why is it so common in our culture to delay? Why do we delay? And how is it that in our culture, and, you know, again, we, we call ourselves a Christian culture, so how is it in our culture that when we accept Jesus, we're, it's really easy and it's totally acceptable in our culture to put him as one of the pies of the puzzle piece of our life? Right, let's not get so radical here. Let's not make him, like, the main thing. Let's put him as a puzzle piece. Let's fit him in there with all the other stuff going on in my life and the little carousel of all the things that are important. Let's just, balance is the key, right? Balance in Jesus, balance in pleasure, balance in fun, balance in work, balance in family, and Jesus is one of the good pieces of the puzzle. Why is that so accepted in our culture? Why is that so common in our culture? And then mission, oh, come on. We, we, we have so many people who claim to be bought by Jesus and accepted by his love and not on mission. How is that, how do, how do we get to that? How did we get to the possibility that there was okay to be a Christian, that to be accepted by God and, and then go, yeah, uh, you know, this God who's reconciling the world you know, that's somebody else's job. And Jesus comes in and he says, hey, you follow me. And I'm going to make you gatherers. You know, fishing in that day wasn't like in our day. It wasn't like you had a fly reel and you threw it out there, you know, and it was a shiny little thing. And you were trying to, you know, attract that fish. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a leisurely thing. It was a big, massive net. It was a gathering tool. And what you did was, is you went out to the part of the ocean where you thought there were going to be a lot of fish, and you dropped the net, and you dragged the floor of the lake to gather as many of them as you could, and you pulled them out. So when Jesus says to you and me, I'm going to make you fishers of men, let me just tell you, let me translate it in our world. He's saying, I want to make you a gatherer. I want you to be a gatherer of men and women. I want to gather people back to myself. That's the mission of Jesus. I'm gathering a family back to myself. And if you call me, if you call on me, if you respond to my message, if you respond to the work of my love in your life, I'm transforming you into a gatherer. This is one of the reasons why if, if you love the corporate worship we've enjoyed today, the natural outflow would be like Velcro to the people in your life and gather them with you. 
The only reason you wouldn't do that is if you didn't enjoy it. But if you enjoyed it, if, if God was beautiful to you and he spoke to your heart and he was moving powerfully in your life and you gather with the people of God and that, that stirred affection in your heart for God, then when you came, you'd be, you'd be like that net. You just, everybody that was in your wake would be touched and bumped and feel the inertia of where you're going and maybe they ought to come with you. You were a gathering net on the, on the floor of the ocean everywhere you went. This is the call of Jesus to his disciples. It's a call to introverts and extroverts, just so we get that straight. It's a, it's a call to all if we follow Jesus. And it can't be separated from it. So, you know, I looked at this and I just thought, what, what, allowed for, what's, what allows for this kind of, like, passivity in our cultural and our Christian walks, what allows for that passivity? And I, I actually think Mark gives us a little hint of what allows for that and what was going on when these guys didn't have that going on, when they responded immediately, when they made everything secondary and they understood it was a mission from the get-go. From the get-go they understood. And I think it's because they encountered one powerful thing when they encountered this rabbi. And here's exactly what Mark's going to show you. And it really is amazing. He gathers him, they leave their father, they leave the nets, and it says in verse 21, they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were what? They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one who had what? Authority. I think there's a little piece there that would just, should jar us a little bit. See, when they were called by Jesus, um, they weren't called by someone who had no influence. They weren't called by a buddy. They weren't, they weren't politely begged. Do you notice Jesus didn't do any begging? Ah, I would just, I would love for you to come to be a fisherman. I just need you so much. That's not Jesus. He called with authority and he taught with authority. And I don't know about you, but I don't hear much about the authority of God when, I talk, when we talk about Jesus in our culture. In fact, all I hear is the stripping away of his authority. Let's, we got to strip it away. So if I don't like something in what he says, this isn't an authority. I don't have to submit to it. I can just go, oh, that's more complicated. And tell you what, let's go to the stuff. Hey, where's the stuff about, there we go. I like that part. And we strip away, and we strip away the authority, the king life of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus. And then we wonder why when we invite people to Jesus, and we go, hey, Jesus would like you to be a part of his mission. They go, all right, I'll let you know when I'm free. But see, that's not the way he called. He called with authority. It says he taught with Authority is what he says. They were astonished for he had authority and he was not as the scribes. Isn't that amazing? Because here's a rabbi who shows up and he's a teacher and they're being like wild by his teaching. But, but then he's got to go. He goes, this is amazing. He had authority, not as the scribes. What's he trying to say? He's just trying to say, there's a lot of great teachers out there. They're really good. There's Dr. Langley's. There's Dr. Boris. There's Dr. Hernando. They're pretty awesome. They're a lot of fun. You're going to get a lot out of their life. They don't have authority. They have no authority. They have no authority. 
And Jesus comes across, you're fine. Jesus comes along with authority. And he calls with authority, and he teaches with authority. He's powerful. He's a king. He's announcing a kingdom. And so when he calls, those who respond to his call respond immediately. They make everything else secondary, and they understand they're on mission. Well, how do they know he had authority? How does Mark show us that Jesus had authority and he wasn't just one of the teachers? He wasn't just one of the guys in the classroom that you're like, oh, that's really cool. That'll add value to my life. I mean, that's how we look at teachers, right? And that's why, that's why we respond to Jesus the way we do. He'll add value to my life. He'll, he'll make some good stuff go for me. But if he comes with authority, it's a different kind of thing. It's there's his call. I'm being drawn in by his call. He's pursuing me, and I'm being invited into his life, and he is the Lord. So whatever he says, I submit to him. That's what happens when you encounter someone with authority. And how do they know? When he shows us how they know he had authority, he says he was teaching as someone who had authority. And he says, and immediately, so I love how Mark does this, immediately he went into the Sabbath, and immediately in the synagogue there was a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, an unclean spirit would be in a demonic influence, right? So there's, there's a, a demonic spirit, there's a rebellious spirit on the man, and Jesus walks into the synagogue. He's teaching with authority. It says immediately there's a man in the synagogue. He's got an unclean spirit. What does he say? He says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebukes him and says, be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing and crying with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with what? How many of us have heard the invitation of Jesus stripped from all its authority? We've been, we've been sold to Jesus who isn't the real Jesus. We've been sold to Jesus we can take or leave. We've been sold a message we can take or leave. We haven't been sold the Jesus of Scripture and the historical Jesus. The historical Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture, teaches with authority. And when he encounters evil, he crushes it. Imagine if you were sitting there watching Jesus deal with an evil spirit and rebukes the spirit. If you're just the average Joe sitting there, you're going like, hey, this is a guy. If you follow him, you got to follow him. He's doing business. He's taken care of evil. And by the way, this power and authority, it's all got a bad rap in our culture. Here's the deal. And if you don't have authority, you can't free oppressed people. If you don't have authority, you can't bring healing. You can't chase out evil. You can't, be, you can't get rid of it. You can't oppose the enemy if you don't have authority. So authority is the thing that allows Jesus to come in and say, you're chained up, freedom. You're stuck, freedom. Hey, there's been oppressed peoples, and they've been marginalized, freedom. How do you do that? You have to have authority. You have to have power. And so those things have gotten bad raps mostly because we like to see ourselves as having power and authority. So we get threatened because I want to be in control, and I want to be the one 
who's in power. And that's just not the message in the work of Jesus. So he rebukes him. He comes out. They say, this is a new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding regions of Galilee. If you think, and I'm about done here, and the worship team can kind of come up here, and we'll get ready to close here in a second. But if you think that this is one little passage, and this isn't actually central to the DNA of Jesus and his ministry and his calling, then you haven't really read um, one of the passages that our brother Harold taught, Matthew 28, which is one of the other gospels and the historical narratives and biographies of Jesus. And how does it end in Matthew 28? We all know it by heart, but check out what it says. He, Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18, he says, all of what? The message of Jesus rests on the authority of Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. See, the therefore is a connection. All authority is mine. I'm the Lord over it all. So what? So go, therefore. You and I go under the authority of Jesus. That's why we don't delay when he calls. That's why when he calls us, we, we, we level everything down. We say, hey, it's, you know, relationships are beautiful, but it's secondary. Work is beautiful, but it's secondary. My, and my, my, my passions and my goals, they're awesome, but they're secondary. Jesus is the authority. And that's how the mission goes out. He goes, all authority's been given to me, so you go in that. He says, go, therefore. Why? Because I have all authority. So we come to him as a people then who say, hey, if that's true, and I've been pursued by God. I've been pursued. I'm, I'm, just as, I'm just as rough as the fisherman. I was just as naive to what he was doing. I didn't have a God thought in the world, but he pursued me. He loved me. He came into my broken world, and he's rescuing me. He's inviting me to do the same thing he did when he got baptized. Humble submission and obedience to the Father. A Father who goes, I am well pleased with you. I like you a lot. I love you a lot. I'm for you. But we've got a thing to do. There's a lot of brokenness that needs to be healed. There's a lot of oppression that needs to be done. And I don't have time to hang out with people who just want to sit on a chair and do nothing. I've got some authority and we need to work it out. So if we want to be a part of that church, then it's going to require some refiguring of some of our conceptions of Jesus and our walk with him. Are we coming to him as he is? And are we going to respond to his call to be gatherers the way he's called the first disciples to be gatherers? And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to respond in a worship song in a second. But before we do that, we're going to come to the table. And when we come to the table, we're going to see the very thing that makes Jesus worthy and the reason he's got all authority. In other words, he went to a table, he laid down his life to pay for the sin and the brokenness of the world. And when we're going to look at that, we're going to go, he's worthy and I submit to him. And that's what we're going to do. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to move to the table. God, we come to you. We see you in your word. As clear as day, calling a people to rescue us and commission us. 
with powerful authority. And so we come to you and ask you to do a work in us so we would humbly submit to you. In Jesus' name, amen.